welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with fiddler, multi-instrumentalist, and composer Ben Smith. Ben wears multiple hats in his career, and in addition to playing for ContraDances, he is a digital multimedia artist, software designer, professor, and researcher with a doctorate in composition. He is one-third of the Mean Lids, his main ContraDance band, and he also writes and performs electro-contra music under the guise of his musical alter ego, DR Shadow. In my conversation with Ben, we touch on his early musical experiences in upstate New York, starting with classical violin, and the magical moment when he first played for a contradance. We discuss his move from New York to the Midwest, where he discovered new musical horizons and eventually met his Mean Lids bandmates. And for the first time on ContraPulse so far, we get to take a deep dive into the world of Techno-Contra, exploring with Ben the intricacies of incorporating electronic dance music and other alternative music forms into the realm of Contra Dance through his DR Shadow project. Let's dive in.
Hello, Ben Smith, and welcome to ContraPulse. Hey, Julie. It is a pleasure to be here. It's been so long since I've seen you. I don't know where it was. Maybe it's CDH? Uh, it was probably Flurry 2020. Flurry. Yeah. Oh, right. The last thing we all did I know. before... It was our super spreader Contra event. <laughs> All we spread was love, though. I then. know. Yep. And music. Uh, such good memories. Such good yeah, memories. that's right. You were there with the Mean Lids. Um, and if I could go back then, maybe I would have just hugged everybody 800 extra times. Yeah. I think the, the last session we played, we could have just canceled it and just had hugged down the line. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Flurry 2020. Well, we're talking to you now. Um, are you at your home in Indianapolis? Yeah. And you can't see it, but it's a beautiful sunny day, and we might be hearing the wind chimes that are back out of the kitchen door. Oh, that's charming. Yeah, it's been kind of this unseasonably warm fall, even here in Brattleboro. It's mid-October. It was 75 degrees yesterday. That's very unseasonable. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful, but um, yeah. So uh, I'm just uh, curious to catch up. And what have you been up to, you know, without contra dance music? What kind of things have you been doing? So actually, I, I have been kind of on a year-long challenge to, um, to write. So I, I write a lot of music, write a lot of my own tunes. And I used to write primarily contra dance music. So be writing tunes that were AABB. Um, or could at least be coerced into that format. And were intended to be played, you know, at about dance tempo, you know, 112, 120 beats per minute. Um, and then also doing my DR shadow electronic stuff, also all geared towards contra dances and waltzes and, you know, supporting those live shows. But once the pandemic, the lockdowns happened and like all of our calendars got cleared, um, I couldn't bring it, I could not find it in myself to write more contra dance music because I was so sad that no one would be dancing to it. Uh, yeah. So for, it's probably like, well, actually, no, it was 184 days that I did not write any music from when I, when we got the like news that we had to stay on. It was heartbreaking. Um, but then I came out of that with the, with this, like, I set myself this challenge that I would only write music that was not for contra dancing. So you could dance to it, you know, I, I can dance in my kitchen to it, but specifically not contra dance music. So I've started writing a lot of really slow things like 84 beats per minute or like and tunes that I really very intentionally are meant to be played slowly and very very simple tunes and for a little while I had a challenge of you know the like write one tune every day and record it in my kitchen and that mm -hmm. that lasted for about 12 days um <laughs> which I was pretty proud of uh yeah yeah so that's I've been I was doing that and then also on the also then on the electronic side I've just been for years and years I've really loved the uh the like slow chill uh, trip hop style of electronic mm -hmm. dance music and I've just been this now recently is like last couple of months really trying to get my head into that space and figuring out how to mesh that with the with the tones and the spirit of what what I think of as like back porch music so you know the things that you and I would sit sit on our porch and play you know I'd play my banjo and we'd play like our tunes and how can I weave in the like very expansive sense of uh, you know, tonality that is in trip hop music. And it's actually the, the tempos of trip hop often are kind of fast, but they're so spacious that they feel slow. But anyway, so I'm trying to mix in like a, a slow trip hop with my like slow banjo tunes. 
And that's that's like what I've been up to. That sounds really fun. I want to come hang out on your back porch. Oh, you're more than <laughs> welcome to. Or I'll come up to Brattleboro. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a super groovy place. You know, it's interesting that you talk about slow tempos because a lot of people I've talked to, I feel like we've all been gravitating in that direction. You know, yeah. I've been working on some like doing a project with slower tempo tunes and I was talking to Sam Bartlett. It's just so funny. Like our, a lot of us, our favorite tempo is like in the eighties to nineties mm -hmm. and yeah. we love dance music Yep. and you know, that's a walking tempo and it needs to be faster, but it is fun to get to explore these things that aren't mm -hmm. dance tempo. They just do different things to your brain. They do. Yeah. They, and in my case, I, it's often like, I find myself kind of having like having to rein myself in. Like I start, you know, you, you do a lot of recording, so I'll start a recording. I hate to play with a click track, um, so I'll like mm -hmm. I'll start out, count out, very get a real strong feeling of what eighty four is, and play along. And a minute in, I'm all the way up to like a hundred. Like I just, uh -huh. it's so hard to to. So it's like a meditation almost to like have to play a tune and just hold it at that slow, you know, more relaxed speed. Yeah, you have to internalize that tempo in a whole different way. You know, it's almost yep. like dancing with the tune in a mm -hmm. sense at that speed. Yeah, yeah. You have to like hold it in your body as you play yep. and be relaxed or else you'll speed up. Yep, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's fun. Um, so for our listeners, um, the main band that a lot of us have heard you in is the Mean Lids. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think you guys go back a good decade plus now at this point, right? Yeah. Your first album came out in like 2010. Uh, yeah, we recorded it in 2009. And wow, yep. wow. Yeah. Do you still see them? I do. Yeah, we, During... we're we're going to be playing. So I don't know when this is coming out, but the, the uh, next Friday. So in like in seven days, Aww. the uh, Urbana, Illinois, has a annual uh, what they call the Folk and Roots Festival. Where they get mm -hmm. they get a lot of like acts from across the country to come and play, but uh, we're kind of we're one of the homegrown ones, so we're playing the like Friday four o'clock kind of like kick off the stage set. So, oh, you have a gig! Yeah, I we just, have one. Was... <laughs> <laughs> so many bands are kind of separated right now, so I'm glad you still get to see each other. That's the advantage of having a band where you all kind of live in the same part of the country. Mm -hmm. Not all <laughs> bands are that lucky. No, no, I mean the. Yeah, I mean, we should talk about this, but we kind of had like the the traveling nature of contradance is something that I think about more and more, especially since I can't do it right now. But how our contradance community is so it's like there's so many of these like what we call traveling gypsies. Like we were I went to so many dances in the, mm -hmm. you know, in the last five years all across the country to play and to dance. And I know people from all over the place. And it just was sort of like natural that we would all be distributed across the country and and be this really you know diverse distributed community and then once you take away travel ah what do we do we have to do things like this like contrapulse right i know it's so funny i felt like my whole fret network of just friends and people i know is scattered all over the country but it felt like this like giant net that i could climb across mm -hmm. across the country like i always felt like someone would catch me wherever i was you know i always knew somebody or was connected to something and it is yeah. bizarre to feel cut off from that 
you know, and we all respond to that in different ways. Some of us hunker down at home. You know, Noah's been just driving all over the country yeah. anyway, <laughs> visiting people because he misses them all without yep. even gigs to do it, you know? Yeah. And, but it, it is interesting. Like, I think I've been to your house once and <laughs> you've been to my house once and yet we've known each other for years and yeah. gotten to know each other. And it's just all through these events and traveling and chatting and talking shop backstage at 1am or whatever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's a fun it's a community it's but you know like how real is it if COVID happens and it disappears but it's real oh it's not gone I was just thinking about this right, today exactly it's not no, gone no no it's like I was I was walking in the woods today because it's beautiful um, and uh, I'm thinking it's, we're very much like the like a phoenix like there's got to be a point when the you have to go back to the egg you know and and then wait for the for the right temp what is it it has to be two two thousand degrees or something for the phoenix to hatch out of the like, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, we're, com- we're at Contra Dance is just dormant right now. We're coming back. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going to come back. It's going to explode like a fire. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really curious to see how it's going to change, which, you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But before I get ahead of myself, why don't we start from the beginning? Um, speaking of eggs, uh, what temperature did you hatch at? <laughs> um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about, like, how you ended up playing fiddle and like the traditional music scene in the Midwest and kind of where you cut your teeth and how you ended up playing for concert dances. Yeah. So it, it's kind of all like I moved around a lot. My, my parents moved quite a bit when I was little. Um, I got a fiddle when I was four or three or something. It's either my parents or my grandparents gave one to me. Um, and I would get it out every year. They tell me and they take pictures of this. Uh, and I would pick it up and see if I could play it as a three-year-old and then put it back in its case and be like, nope, we'll try again next year. So I did that every year until I was nine. And then my parents got me fiddle or violin lessons. So I started, I was Suzuki trained. So for those of you who don't know, it's like a lot of by ear, uh, very, uh, you don't learn to read music for years. Um, and which set me up great for going into fiddle music. Um, the reason that I got that I started playing fiddle music, well, actually, I'm just, I'm just remembering this right now. Uh, my mom always wanted to have a fiddle player in the family, not a violinist. She wanted a fiddle player. Um, but as a little kid, I wanted to be a violinist. So um, Ken Burns' Civil War comes out, um, and to like to do, uh, for like a birthday present to my mom, I bought, you know, we had it on, we video recorded like the third episode, um, which has um, the, the Unger band, like the footage of them actually playing it. Um, and I would just play that, that little section over and over and over again when mom was not in the house so that I could learn Ashokan Farewell and I played it for her and she cried and it was awesome. Um, then I didn't play fiddle music for years after that, for real. Um, we, so I was, we grew up in Alabama. This was all around Huntsville area. Uh, and then as a 15-year-old, um, we moved to upstate New York. Uh, and if, for anybody out there who has a 15-year-old and is thinking about doing that, don't. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not good for a 15-year-old psyche to be uh, transplanted from their friend group, especially this was pre, like, pre-internet, so there, wasn't, there was no way to stay in touch with my friends. They, uh, I miss them still to this day. Uh, so moved up there and now, so I'd been in a youth orchestra, I moved up there. There was no real youth orchestra that satisfied my, like, like social music needs as a teenager. 
the way that the Alabama scene had been. So um, uh, some friends of the family just were put together a, a contra dance uh, in Perry City, New York. I don't know, um, Julie, if you ever made it over there. It's like near Trumansburg, like south of uh, Interlaken. Um, oh, no. Yeah. I grew up in the part of upstate that was Rochester area, <laughs> like yeah, the yeah. western upstate New York. Um, so it's just a little tiny town, but it had an old Quaker meeting house. And so they put on mm. like a family contra dance there um, and roped in all the all the kids that they knew that also played. So I I got on stage and my sister and I remember there's another girl playing fiddle um, and I'd never played fiddle music, but they said, it's OK, we have notes. And I read so. They were like, here, just, just play these tunes. Um, and I, it was like that that was a transformative moment that like came at just the time in my life when I desperately needed like a social mm -hmm. interaction. And here were these adults that like took me under their wing and they were just, it was just very casual and loving and friendly and like all the best things about a Contra experience. Um, and oh, the other part of it is as a teenager, uh, playing classical music, I had the worst case of nerves. And we had to do like every, like twice a year, we had to play a solo, like a solo piece at a recital with all the other people in the studio and all the parents listening. And right around then, I just had a total bomb of a piece. I got up and played this piece and got halfway through and my mind just completely went blank. And I had had no idea where I was and like what note I was supposed to play, where I was in the piece and the accompanist tried to help me. It was just terrible. It's like the worst stage fright inducing like outcome that you could ever possibly imagine. I went and played this contra dance and there was like, why would I, there was no nerves at all. It was just fun. And it was so, it was the, when I, I realize this now, it was like the participatory nature of that where the caller and all the dancers, everybody's invested in it being a really, really good outcome. Like we all have fun when we all participate and we, and everybody, dan the dancers are laughing and making mistakes. It was a family dance. So like lots of little kids are making mistakes. And, um, and so I, I started, so we did like four of those. Uh, and then they invited me to come down to the open dances on the Ithaca Commons, the Monday night dances. So shout out to the Monday night crew down there. Um, and I, I would go and play there, uh, every Monday for like three years, uh, and would like rope in my sisters. We live way out in the country. So would pile my sisters in the van. I had my learner's permit. So we'd drive, we'd go down Mondays and play there, play the first half of that dance and then have to go back home. Um, that was, that was a start. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to play fiddle. And uh, then I was like, oh wait, these people are playing banjo. I'm going to play banjo. And then like mm -hmm. one guy came with a mandolin and I was like, what is that? I'm going to, so I actually tried <laughs> to make a mandolin because I couldn't afford to buy one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, that was, it was the right time and right place. And I just became obsessed. I, I loved it all. I didn't realize that you spent time in Ithaca. That's interesting. Yeah. And in fact, it yeah, we... may have been around the same time that you were up in there. Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, we were so close to each other and never ran into each other. I didn't even know contra dancing existed when I lived in Ithaca, which is a real shame. Because, of course, there's a wonderful scene full of wonderful folks. Yeah. And, you know, there's dances in town. There's dances at Cornell. There's, like, various things. And I didn't know about any of it. Um. Wow. So I'm glad that fiddling came along at that time in your life, you know, and that it kind of took hold for you. 
Um, it's also interesting. I wonder how many other people had that experience of like their first fiddle tune being a Shokin farewell. I know, right? Because of the Ken Burns <laughs> movies. Kind of cliche, I think, but. Uh... <laughs> But I think it's true. I think it's like the gateway tune for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are uh, into fiddle music. Right. Especially from the coming over from the classical world. I think that that tune has the, uh, it's, it's accessible enough that I, as like a, I've been playing for three years, I could play all the notes. And it was the right number of notes that made me feel like I was doing a great job. You know, like it, it, there's, it has a has a pretty wide range, right? But as a yeah. as a reason, you know, as a inter, sort of intermediate musician, you can play it all, lots of good chords, like, and you and it, you know, it's, it's a tune that brings chills to people, like really legitimately, like it brings chills to me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's like one of those sort of quintessentially great tunes. Yeah. Yeah, Jay Unger's tunes, they, they like his waltzes and things. They, they just have that like real heartfeltness to them. And that melody is just soaring. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's classic. Um, so uh, what were your mentors as you were learning to play fiddle and banjo? Like who were you learning from? Who were you inspired by once you decided you wanted to do this? So, so mentor was a woman, Marty Blodgett in Ithaca, New York, who was just a, she just played fiddle. And she she was the one who, who like called up my mom, was like, I hear Ben plays violin, can he come play fiddle with us? Um, and then we we played for years and years and had like four different bands and, you know, played dances and we played restaurants and played at, you know, family picnics and just, just wherever, like we played. Um, and uh, she was also, she like took me to things so that she's she got me to my first flurry uh got me to uh, old songs uh i'm trying to remember what else just like you know a bunch of the upstate oh the first time i got to dance to wild asparagus in rochester uh in 97 and it was i remember it being in like a i'm sure i don't People in Rochester will know what space this was, but uh, like like a sort of basement, like under a church kind of thing, all white with these like columns, you know, one of those awkward, like there's columns in the dance floor kind of spaces. Uh, and I just remember it being totally packed. And like I tried to dance a couple of dances and then I just stood next to the stage and watched them and specifically watching Becky Tracy playing for, the, for this fl- floor. And I was so impressed that she's like, in playing immaculately um and then just like moving around like like kicking her feet out in different directions like stretching like i was like how is she moving so much and then still like just playing like all this awesome music um so like one of my one of my sort of heroes people that i that i want to emulate um and then but other than that it was like a lot of recordings so, you know, we lived way out in the country, um, and I just tried to get every recording I could get my hands on. Um, so I was listening to, you know, the Scottish, uh, you know, like Alistair Fraser, um, Irish players, Martin Hayes, uh, uh, old time bluegrass, listened to a lot of bluegrass music. And, and later, once I got to college, I, I like seriously dove into the bluegrass world and kind of left Contra behind for a while before coming back to it. Um, but yeah, and that was that was a time when so we had a, our first 
personal computer, uh, and I was able to get, you know, turn on the recording on the computer, turn up the record player, uh, and then capture that tune on the, you know, the uh, computer. And then we had a software where I could, you could slow it down by half. So I was, I spent hours and hours and hours listening to all these little tunes an octave down and trying to figure out how to, how to play them all. Um, which later then set me up for a great uh, career in music technology and recording. <laughs> right. I guess they didn't have software yet that would pitch shift it, like preserve the pitch as you slow oh, it no, down. No. So, yeah. so you have to do it exactly half or else it will not be, you know, something you can play along with easily. Yep. The other alternative was to take 45s and then play them at the 33 RPM. But uh-huh. I don't actually remember now what that pitch shift was. I used that to try and transcribe it so that I could just then read it from the notes. But yeah, all those things we used to have to do to try and figure out how to learn these tunes that we can't just, couldn't just get them off the internet. There was no like session site or anything. Yeah, it's amazing how technology has changed the way we all learn and share tunes. We take it for granted. We don't even think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, a lot of us love learning, learning tunes from people in person. To me, that's my favorite way to do it. But we don't have to. There's all these other ways to do it too. And so it's just great. It is. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Trumansburg, right? Yeah. And I spaced on it, but of course I know where Trumansburg is. That's like right outside Ithaca. Yeah. And um, I uh, got several speeding tickets there when I was in college at Cornell. <laughs> so I remember that town very well. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've been pulled over there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you like you come across the town line, it's 30, you don't notice, doesn't take much. Yep. Uh, maybe I blocked it out in my memory. <laughs> so how did you end up in the Midwest and becoming a part of the Midwest uh, dance and music scene? So, yeah, moved to the Midwest. So after after like being in the in the Finger Lakes area, um, get, you know, doing the contra dance stuff there, uh, I went to college at Ithaca College, got a bachelor's in music um, and uh Ben, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but we were there at the same time. This is driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah, but you were on the other hill. And I was. I never went over there. <laughs> no, we didn't. Yeah, none of us left campus most of the time, except to go to downtown in the middle, but we would never have met each other. No. I don't think I went to IC campus once in the six years I lived in Ithaca, which is so dumb, but I didn't have a car. You know, I rode my bike everywhere. Yep. So. Yep. Anyway, so funny. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So during the so when I was when I went to college, I kind of left the like I just fell headlong into my program. Loved it. Like invested all my time there, and didn't have time for contra dancing anymore. Um, I my musical outlet outside of school, where I, you know I had to play in I played in the opera and I played in the symphony and I played in the chamber orchestra and I played in string quartets and I, you know, gigged for weddings and things like that. Um, I also formed a uh, like formed with a bunch of buddies a bluegrass band, and so then we played Ithaca people from the like around 2000. Maybe remember Cletus and the Barnburners, woot woot, uh, and uh, so we played that and uh, and tried to do the bluegrass thing. Like went to the IBMA you know uh, conference and uh, traveled around and, and I was, it was it was super fun, um, but that kind of then came to take up a huge amount of time and it wasn't enough money to live on. So I got a job as a software engineer um, in Ithaca, did that for two years before figuring out I really can't sit behind a desk. Like that's not my life. 
uh, I love music. I've got to find a way to make music uh, my career. And so while I was working as a software engineer, um, put together grad school applications and because I was dead set on going to school for uh, electronic music composition. And uh, I did. I applied to a bunch of schools, uh, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign uh, had the like dream program for me, uh, got accepted. Uh, it was it was very the hardest part for me was leaving upstate New York and especially leaving the folk music scene there because um, I was playing in the old like the old time crew there. Um, I finally figured out how to play Clawhammer banjo thanks to uh, Richie Stearns. I managed to get some lessons with him. Uh, and then uh, I'd also learned, taught myself uh, the like hot club swing style, like transcribed a whole bunch of Stefan Grappelli and Joe Venuti and all those guys uh, and was playing in that scene. And I was like, there is no way, and our apologies, Midwestern listeners, but just you have to know this is what people in New York often do think about you. Um, is <laughs> Uh, is I was like, there's no way the music scene out there is that good. Like, there's not going to be anybody. Like, I want to be the only fiddle player. There's not going to be anybody who plays swing or, you know, like, what is even old time? Do they have old time music in Illinois? I don't know. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh, they do. It turns out they do. So I moved out there thinking I was going to end up in this, like, vacuum of culture. And it turned out that the place is just like, uh, like uh, I don't even, I don't know, like, all right, I'm I'm a I'm really heavy into foraging and and mushrooms and all that kind of stuff, and so I would now say in a really really positive way that like Midwest is like these mushrooms of, of folk music just like come up everywhere, and they're they're so beautiful and and delicious, and maybe that metaphor doesn't go that far, but um, yeah, there's just so much music, and I'm sure that, I mean the music in upstate New York's awesome and innovative too, but the Midwest music I felt for me was like refreshingly different. And, and incorporating and like more, I don't know, I felt it was very porous and a lot of crossover musicians who were playing Zydeco and playing old time. And then there is some, there, I've met some people who played hot club swing and I was like, yes, do you need a fiddle player? And they're like, we've been wanting a fiddle player. Um, you know, and then like wor world beat music and African uh, bands and like Afro pop bands. It was just like so much stuff. Um, and then I and you know I realized that like Urbana is really well situated to catch a lot of artists that were touring across the country and either had a gig in Chicago like the night before or after, mm -hmm. um, and would swing through because it's only like two and a half hours from Chicago. So, anyways, really good you know like lots of music coming all over the place, and I've just met so many amazing people. And I now I only live two hours away, and as I said, I'm going back there next weekend to participate in their folk festival, which is going to be awesome. Um, yeah, but anyway, so I, so I came out here for grad school, lots of trepidation, turned out to be an, an amazing thing, and uh, yeah, I haven't left. Wow, and then you ended up meeting Miriam Larson and Matt Torino, and you know, Matt has been in the that music scene for a long time, playing with his dad, his dad Tom mm -hmm. Torino. And so how did you end up forming the Mean Lids and start playing for concert dances out there? Yeah, so actually it does kind of come through Tom. Uh, when it, so he was a uh, professor in the, in the music department that I was in. He was professor of uh, ethnomusicology, which is on the fourth floor. Uh, and I was a, a doctoral student in the composition program, which is on the fifth floor. Uh, and there's only one elevator. I think that's right. Maybe there's two. 
I felt like there's only one. Uh, so one day I get in the elevator and he's he's there and he says, "Are you are you Ben?" Um, I'm like, "Yes." He's like, "I'm Tom." I'm like, oh, "Okay." And he says, "I <laughs> I have a Zydeco band and I need a fiddle player. Do you play Zydeco?" And I was like, "No, but I will." Um, and so what had happened is it turned out that his son, Matt, had been the fiddle player in his Zydeco band for a long time. And then he had just left, moved to Asheville uh, for school. And I had just moved to town. So Matt leaves like the week that I arrive. Um, wow. And then uh, so then I get conscripted into the Zydeco band. Uh, and we have great played that, that band, Big Grove Zydeco. Uh, it was just so much fun. Some of my best memories of playing on stages. Um, and so I became, I became the fiddle player that played, I don't even remember now how many years we played, probably for like five or six years that band kept going. Um, during that time, Matt eventually moves, moves back to Urbana. Uh, and now he didn't want to be the fiddle player. He wanted to be the, uh, the rub board player, the washboard player. So, so he played washboard and I played fiddle. Um, we got to know each other, hung out a lot through that. Uh, and then at one point, you know, kind of like one of these backstage uh, conversations, uh, he starts talking about contradance music. I hadn't been playing it for a while. Uh, and I was like, contradance? I love contradance music. And he's like, oh, also at the, at the time in Urbana, um, almost all the contradance music in the bands were very, very much old time bands. Um, there was no New England style music in town that was playing for contradances. Uh, so Matt was said, you know what we need to do to spice this up a little bit is to like form like a more New England style band. He's like, Ben, you can play like that Irish stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, I do, I do. Um, between all of that, I lived for eight months in Ireland. So, and spent a lot of time in pubs and drank a lot of Guinness. So, uh, I felt competent playing Irish music. Um, and, uh, so we did, so we formed a duo. So he and I formed a duo. We were, uh, oh, this is for all posterity, right? So now if I say it, <laughs> you're going to remember, or it'll be, look it up. Anyways. Yeah. Our band was called the, uh, Prairie Chicken Asylum. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we were just a duo and we had, we had so much fun doing it and we were received well that we started traveling around. We played all the regional dances, you know, like we can play Monday night, St. Louis and, uh, Tuesday night, Indianapolis, and there's a Chicago also on a Monday. Anyway, so we, we played a bunch of those, you know, did the, like two, uh, two or three hour drives. Um, and that was, that was fun, but we were like, you know, you know how it is playing in a duo. You have to be, you have to be on, like, I mean, you have to be, if you're on the stage, you should be on all the time, but with two yep. people, like there's not, very, there's like really no rest. There's no, yep. there's no like, here, I'll just kick back and let you guys take it. Because uh, there's only one other person. Um, you can do that sometimes, but you know, we were gu primarily guitar and fiddle, and then occasion, and then our other lineup was Matt would play fiddle and I played baritone fiddle. Um, so we always have one high and one low instrument, you know, like one lead and one rhythm. There's it's only so much you can do with just a rhythm solo, which I do love, but it only lasts for like a couple times through the dance. Um, so we were like, we need a third person, uh, and we need another, you know primarily melody, but somebody who can like hang with our, like you have to be able to fill all the roles. Uh, and Matt and Miriam, this would be their story for another interview, but uh, they'd known each other and been playing music together since they were little. Uh, they grew up together in, in Urbana. Um, and as kids, the, the fun, sort of fun things that they would do is like try to learn a, a Norwegian tune and uh, off a recording and then try and play it together. Um, so she she came back from college uh, like after we'd been a band together for a year, uh, 
the first time I played with her was at uh, this big event out here in the Midwest, Sugar Hill, uh, which is like down south of Bloomington, Indiana. Amazing festival, uh, contra dance, like contra dance weekend camp. Um, and so we, we just, it's one of the ones where you sign up for a slot. So we signed up for like 1 a.m. on Saturday night. And, uh, and we were like, okay, Miriam, you got to play with us. So she sat in with us. And uh, then we were like, okay, you're coming back from college. You're going to be in our band. Uh, and then we had to come up with a new name. So Mean Lids. And now you have to wear hats every time you play together. We do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Good thing you like hats. <laughs> yep. We all liked hats, so that was why we felt comfortable. In fact, that was how... Okay, so brief story of the name, because you're going to ask. Uh, it was... Uh, we all wore hats to all of our gigs. And one of our friends who came to, like, all of them, um, he was like, you're wearing hats all the time. I forget even... We tried several different names. Uh, and he was like... He was always wearing, like, real dapper kind of clothes. You know, always wore nice shoes, that kind of stuff. He was like, you should be called mean lids because you always wear hats and they're very just like snappy um and, I was, and we were like okay we'll try it so we like put that on the next time we played a contra dance and then it never changed
so the mean lids I mean, as you guys sort of came into your own as a band, one of the things you became known for was having a lot of original repertoire. And you have a a stack of CDs, all with Mm -hmm. a lot of original tunes on them. Um, But when you first started playing together, what was your repertoire when you started and how did it evolve? So so as I I sort of alluded to already, our kind of our what we felt was our mandate was to play what we considered New England style continents, which we were later told is not New England at all, but uh, whatever. Um, so, so we intentionally did not pick like old old time string band style tunes, um, and mm-hmm. I did not play banjo uh, in, the, in the beginning. Um, and so it was uh, well off of our first album um, uh, that I'm now I'm blanking on the names of them. Shoot. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, but we play uh, like you know, like ships are sailing. Um, these like contra dance style tunes. Well, I mean, we had the Portland books. Like, doesn't everybody? Um, right. So yeah, we were picking reels and and jigs out of that. At the beginning, it was we weave in some some things like uh, what's what is the um, oh the rambling pitchfork jig was one I remember. Like we don't play it anymore, uh, but I. I was always trying to get us to play it. Um, Gallagher's Frolics, uh, a bunch of those Frolics, Flowers of Things, you know, a lot of those flower tunes. Um, flowers of Edinburgh, yep. there's a lot of different flowers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we were playing those and then, and then, but Matt was not, didn't know how to, he didn't play any kind of your like New England sort of contra dance style guitar playing. He was very much mm. figuring it out on his own. Oh, can we talk about how he does his feet? Let's talk about that. Yes, later. <laughs> I literally was just thinking about his backwards feet okay. as you were talking. All right, about yeah, this. yeah. Let's let's geek out on this. Um, so, as it's something, and this uh, Matt, I love you dearly, dearly. And this is actually an awesome part. I realized it's like one of our superpowers. Later, um, is uh, so so Matt didn't learn how to do the feet from another from other people. He just learned from like you know watching some YouTube videos and listening to it. Um, and he had, he had a background in straight up clogging, you know, like stand up, you know, Southern hard soul clogging. Um, so, uh, instead of doing the standard right heel and then toe toe, which is what we mostly do in the more like, I guess, coming from, you know, the, our main, uh, French Canadian style. Uh, so heel toe toe, uh, he did heel, right heel, and then left foot heel toe. So it's heel, heel toe, heel, heel toe, <laughs> um, which uh, in sonically the you hear, you know, like the Nightingale feet track um, is so clean and, and like and uh, so very precise, but it has this like very, very sort of higher kind of pit- pitch to it. Like I look at the waveform in the recording and it's very the, the toe sounds are really clean, like tap tap on the wood. Whereas if you have two heels, especially from, from a big guy like Matt, uh, those are boom, boom. So you, on the, on the offbeat, instead of getting that toe, toe, you get heel toe. So again, it's so like I'm all in ele- into the electronic music. So it's much more like having a kick or yeah, kick and then snare hat instead of kick and two hats. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, just, it's a very different sound, but that is now the mean lids sound yeah that's fantastic yeah and it, it, i think it fits really well with your groove 
Because I think of you as ultimately a groove band. And of course, you can think of yourselves however you like. But that's how I think of you. Yep. You know, like you, it's you're tune based. You play tunes and you play the heck out of the tune. Like you'll play the same tune for 10 minutes sometimes, it seems. This is my, um, you know, mm-hmm. uninformed take from the dance floor. And they have like a real arc to them often. Like you'll build up and then you'll pull back and then you'll build or you'll just keep building like the entire time for 10 minutes straight and there's no fancy tricks. And somehow that foot style, it just all fits, you know, with the groove and the vibe. You're vibey. Mm-hmm. You guys are vibey. Yeah. You have a vibe. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's that was one of our, that was our, one of our things from the beginning was and we all we continually talk about this we used to in the car all the time but we don't have a car to travel in or we have cars but we just don't have gigs to travel to um but we continually check in with each other on like you know what is it that we really want to create in the in our music and in the dance floor and like and we would talk a lot about which bands and which experiences really meant something to us in the contra dance world um and then you know who do we really want to emulate or you know like is there like one track that we like of a of an artist that we've all loved and we all you know oftentimes not even a contra dance band but just something that we we all resonated with all of us and that we really wanted to figure out how to do in our music um you know learn from the from the from who we consider the greats um and so we would come back again and again to that really trancey feeling of in the dance of like being transported and feeling like that everybody on the floor like all moving together and the music that makes that happen you know how do you Mm -hmm. what when that's really happening on the floor what is happening in the music and can we as much as possible get ourselves into those situations so that we can help we we can create that experience on the floor um so the bands that we love nightingale uh clayfoot strutters uh crowfoot Mm -hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Great Bear Trio. I felt like we were in their shadow like our our whole career. Um, <laughs> uh, Nor'easter, like your work. Um, well, of course, I was. We were all inspired by the same bands doing the same <laughs> no, thing, yeah. right? Like Crowfoot, Nightingale, you yeah. know. So yes, <laughs> uh, we had just started, and then Perpetually Motion, you know, cr- crisscrossed the nation, um, and then you know, oh, uh, um, Syncopaths uh, from mm-hmm. West Coast. Um, KGB, uh, I could keep on going. I'm sure there's lots more that I'm missing here. We can, we can put them in the in the notes afterwards. Um, uh, yeah, but so on, and in all those cases, the tracks that always stood out to us were those ones that had just that just that incredible dynamic arc. I'm making gestures with my hands that no one can see here. Um, you know, like it's an arc. <laughs> it's an arc. Start start with like that simple tune, and then it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. Uh, or you know, I mean, there's several different patterns you can do, but just like that, it just carries you through. So one of the you're asking like, what did we start with? When we had started back in 2008 and nine, uh, we played like a lot of three set, uh, three tune sets. You know, like kind of mm-hmm. standard. Like that's was a device we used to sort of propel momentum through the through the piece and we'd think about like key changes you know like classic contra dance band formula um but now however many what is this 12 years later um we have stripped out almost all of those and i'd say more than 50 percent of our material is a single tune it's just mm-hmm. in one tune and it's in one key uh and we very much 
trance out on it. We keep the melody going, but then we'll like break the melody. We'll just tear the melody apart, like break it down to the essence of whatever the tune is, uh, and then build it back up again. And like that's the kind of interplay that I, that we we do in that in that group. Um, and we've also uh, headed a lot towards having like a lot of what we call pedal points in the classical world or like drone tones, you know, like if we're in D, we'll be holding the D through the whole thing, but oftentimes Matt won't finger the E string on the guitar. So you have this like D with that open E, the like higher E are just all ringing through the whole thing. Yeah. So that makes like just a permanent sus chord yeah. on the one chord basically. Right, it gives you that little bit of tension yeah. that is kind of just yeah. like woven into the fabric of it. Yeah. I love the one chord as a drone. I think it's kind of underrated as a chord, you know, like there's more to the one chord than just resolving to it from somewhere else, which is the main satisfying way that people use it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of tunes have drones built into them, you know, yeah, especially yeah. if they're written on instruments that literally have drones, you know, like various kinds of pipes and stuff or diatonic yep. instruments. And so it's it helps you really build that atmosphere that you're creating right with mm -hmm. that little bit of tension from that pedal point like you're talking about yeah i think of i think of music a lot visually so like i think of it as like when we go into a con you go into a set to play or you know we have a track that we're we're making uh it's like a landscape right like you know we're gonna like a big painting or like a picture or just actually being in a landscape um and then in our physical reality, landscapes don't change that much. Like, especially if we're, unless you're like in a jet plane or a super fast car and you're able to move through the landscape super fast, it's not really going to change that much. Like the interest is in moving more, moving slowly. I, I find it, it's interesting to like move slowly through the woods, you know, and, and they see the, mm -hmm. like the type of move, you know, it's deciduous trees. It's like a, a beech grove. And then you start to get more oaks in there, but the ground hasn't changed much. It's still the same soil, the same sky. Like those things are like, back the backdrop and then the interest is kind of like in this what can you do in the middle there so yeah mm -hmm. so i think of our like we when i, I think when the mean lids are doing their the best work the stuff i love the most uh, is when we've sort of stayed in the same place for the whole track and yet been able to move like so far musically from like a you know like a, the seed has been planted at the beginning it's just like the banjo and the flute started out, but then by the end, it's just like huge. And the, like the speakers are like going at, you know, the full wattage, you know, just like filling the floor and like just carrying like, like sonically with the sound waves carrying people. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing feeling. And it's one of the reasons that dancers love you. Um, I wonder, you know, being a musician who often tries to create that vibe also, do you get the part of your brain like five times, like the caller gives you five more and you're like, what on earth are we going to do for five times more? How are we going to make that interesting? Because this happens to me, but I don't think it happens to everyone. Or do you just kind of believe in yourselves that you'll keep finding ways? Do you ever like, how can we get bigger from here? Where else can this go? Like, do you get thoughts like that? I do. Uh, and because I was a professor of music for a bunch of years, actually like broke this all down and would would teach my students so i wasn't teaching contra dance music i was teaching like electronic uh production so it was students that were like writing uh you know sort of like backing tracks for hip-hop or electronic dance music or you know things like that um but it, it, same issues like okay 
you this you know this track is going to have to be three and a half minutes long and you've made it a minute and 20 seconds in that's like a lot of empty space ahead of you like what what are you going to do well it turns out that in like from the compositional literature uh everything's been done before we don't have to invent crazy new tricks for all these things um but yes when they say five more through um i do run through my brain i'm like okay what do we do what have we already done and what could we do now and also when there's only five there's like you can't well it depends on who you are but i wouldn't like it's at the five mark i wouldn't do like a totally crazy thing like i've not switched tunes because it's like right. you've just introduced a whole a whole trajectory that you can't finish um but yeah the 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 like repertoire of things and in the contradance world you can learn these just by listening to all the bands listen to all of them um <laughs> you know so it'd be like have we have we dropped have we just like dropped out the rhythm recently you know could we just have all right we got five that's a nice little arc you could build like we could just cut back to what did we do at the very beginning of the whole song like so we're in the like musical theater sense reprising the intro so be like oh yeah we started with banjo and flute all right matt stop we're gonna take the next one and we just do banjo and flute and then you know the next time you're like okay well now we can introduce something so we let's say like okay bring in the feet and then i'll you know banjo i'll switch to doing more like chords and miriam will keep playing you know the melody whatever you know so there's there's so many the, the tricks to like which i guess would mostly boil down to you take something away or you add something and that can even just be like if i was playing the melody i could quote unquote take that away by switching to me playing the rhythm now and where i've added that as the component so doing it on stage is super fun like you have to be on your toes uh five though is also an awkward number i really love three <laughs> i lose count if somebody if a caller says five i'm like can you just tell us when we get to three or two <laughs> Yeah, I love hearing you talk about this because for me as a dance musician, playing with that energy and that arc is one of my favorite things to do where you're in the moment and you're trying to read the floor and like, like, do they look tired? Do they want us to kind of pull back a little bit mm -hmm. or is it full steam ahead? You know, I feel like a lot of bands, when you run out of ideas, the obvious thing to do is just to pull back a little bit and then come back hard again, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But the thing I like about the Meanlets is that you don't always do that. Sometimes, and I remember sitting there watching you guys at like CDH with Noah or something, and Noah has this amazing gift where his brain doesn't analyze music, which uh -huh. means he gets to enjoy it in this whole different way than I do. But I would be sitting next to him and be like, Noah, look, they're not backing off. What are they going to do? They're going to play off the cliff. What are they going to run out of ideas? But you never do, of course. You know, you just find ways to intensify the emotion. And I think especially when you're an experienced band and you're used to playing with each other, you kind of know what you can do. Like you can always go deeper. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was one of the first lessons we learned in Nor'easter once we had played together for a little while is the caller would give us one more. It'd be like, okay, time to ramp it up. And then the dance would end like, oh, we had so much more. Like we're uh, like a race car and uh -huh. we only ended at 100 miles an hour, but we probably could have gone 120. Yep. And so I started asking callers to give us two times from the end and then three. And then sometimes I was yeah. like, just for fun, tell me five times from the end. I don't know what I'm going to do with the information, yep, yep. but, you know, it's like really interesting to find out like it's an interesting experience. I think all bands should do some kind of exercise to find out how much you have 
there and just like keep going past what you think Mm -hmm. is the emotional peak because there's often more in there that you didn't know you had yeah yeah you know like the thoroughbred and the last bit of the horse race you know all of a sudden gets a burst of energy or whatever (laughs) which the dancers love um yeah the phrase leave it all on the field comes to mind like yeah you don't want to you don't want to end the night at the contra dance and be like wow yeah, we definitely had another twenty MPH there that we could have we could have done. <laughs> what are we doing with it now? Um, I and also the um, I think I, I think about this. I should actually just do this with myself more often. Um, I was in a workshop with a blues musician a number of years ago, and I wish I remembered his name. I kind of it was at or it was at the University of Illinois, and I was just walking past one of the one of the lecture rooms, uh, and there's this blues guy. It's like a classical opera program, and there's this blues guy in there, like talking and like demonstrating. That. So I just like went in, um, and the, the the exercise that he was having everybody do, regardless of what style of music, when they got up to like play a little bit, and then he like cr- uh, critiqued them. He's he wanted everyone to play whatever their thing was, in the in the like quietest, lightest fashion that they could. Like the mm-hmm. most quiet, minimal, like find a way to like make it down to the essence. Even so, then he was like, you know, like, all right, take away all those extra notes. You don't need those notes. Like here in this part here, you don't do all that like fancy stuff. Just hold, you know, just like hold that, and you know, then. Uh, and so he'd have him do that, and he was every time he was like, no, quieter, quieter, do quieter. And then the flip side of that, as loud, as full, as like pedal to the metal find your sixth gear or whatever, how many gears up you can go um, and play that. And he, he was awesome, like in getting these people who were playing like they understood what forte was, it's loud, but getting them to just like unleash, like to the point where they're almost breaking their instruments, like just all, all the way to the wall. Um, and so I did not play, but uh, I took that home with me and, and tried it. Um, and then I've the mean lids we don't do this in any sort of structured way but it's very much that sort of an idea too like what is the if this is the tune we're going to play so a tune that we do this with uh, julianne johnson um what is the simplest lightest version that we could play and you know we might play that we usually actually we wouldn't play that while the caller's like teaching the dance because nobody's really listening to us Uh, but you know at some (laughs) point in the middle maybe break it down to like what is that lightest minimal one uh, where it's not so light that the dancers think you've stopped playing and they just stop dancing. <laughs> right? that's, the, right. that's, that's when you know the floor, if they just stop. Um, so what is that lightest minimal version? And then on the other side, what is pedal all the way to the floor? We think we've, yeah. could we do more? And right now we're like, we're not, our hands aren't bleeding yet, but they could, we could be breaking strings. And Matt actually is notorious for breaking strings at those moments <laughs> <laughs> often. Um, which is problematic. But anyways, we, we power through it. It's exciting. Like, what does that get all the way to that edge? So finding those limits and knowing that both individually and then as a group, like where where does your band go? What's your range? What are your speeds? Uh, I think it's immensely helpful as a, as a group to then be able to know what, what you could do in a moment when someone says five more times. Yeah. Yeah, and the dancers, like, feed off of that too because there's this amazing feeling of being a dancer and you think your body's tired and then all of a sudden you get this rush of energy and it's like your body's dancing itself you know the music like I used to feel like that dancing to Nightingale all the time you Mm -hmm. know you just 
it's just or a crow foot, you know, like afterwards you're like, whoa, I'm a little tired. But in the moment you don't. You didn't notice at all. Yeah. No, yeah. you don't notice it at all. And it's it's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like to really get to that place, I have to have dancers or people. You know, like it's you can't do it in rehearsal the same way because there has to be that I know that conduit in order for it to happen. Yeah, and that synergy of like when you start pulling on the energy, then the dancers start responding, and then you respond to them, and it's like this positive feedback loop. Absolutely, yeah. It's just really great. Yeah. So, like repertoire wise. You sort of have all ended up. You didn't make it as a New England band for very long, nope. Ben. <laughs> nope. And you sort of have ended up playing a lot of original material and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So yeah, to get back to your question. Um, so we we all had been writing tunes, you know. And I was I'd been a composer. I'd, you know, I wrote a symphony. I wrote a string quartet. I wrote choral works. That um, seems a lot harder than writing concert tunes. It is. By the way. It is uh, a lot harder. Um, and I think fewer people listen to it too. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so we all had written tunes. So we were already so as soon as we started like playing for dances, we were already like workshopping our tunes to see if you know what they would fit with and how they would get into the uh, mix. Um, and then gradually we just gravitated to playing those because we felt more passionately about them. Um, mm-hmm. And also we would hear things like so. Uh, I have a tune on our latest album uh, that I wrote after hearing elixir at leaf i don't remember which one it was but one of the leaf festivals uh, i heard elixir and they played this tune that had this like uh uh like a it's kind of ska but kind of like reggae horn line in the background behind mm-hmm. them uh and i was like oh i just love the rhythm of that horn line it was just like two chords that they were going back and forth between uh so then i was like i'm gonna do a whole tune for us that captures like that rhythmic pattern uh and so it's on our it's on the uh, Prairie Summer album, uh, Little Gravel Walks. And so we just start out, all three of us, just playing that that rhythm, like, dun, 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 dee, da, dun, uh, well, the chords are changing underneath it. Uh, and so then, actually, then, you know, years later, we I think we split Leaf with Elixir. I think we did. Um, but anyways, we played we played something with them. Uh, and we played that. And then afterwards, one of the was like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And they were like, no, that doesn't mean anything to us. What were you doing? <laughs> we don't hear the connection. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we very, so we very much moved into if we heard something that we really liked from another band, we'd like sort of make it our own and write a tune that was inspired by that, um, or just things that just came to us. You know, just we were inspired by I don't know watching the trees. You know, then I'd write a tune on the banjo and we learned to play it. Uh, but also that helped us, I think figure out how to like build those uh, those big shapes. Like if we were write, yeah. writing the tune and workshopping it together, we kind of gravitated towards putting either putting the right things in or stripping out a lot of stuff out of a tune uh, to support the like structural way that we wanted to to like shape a, a, a set. So like yeah. yeah, so like our on the on our Calyx album, the first track, Glenn's Triumph, like that that was a fun one. We all lived like down the block from each other so we'd get together a lot and so we wrote that one actually like in like all three of us sitting there being like oh how about if after that bar it went like this bar and we'd be like oh no i don't like that one so much and if you listen if listeners if you listen to that track really carefully you'll hear that miriam and i don't play the same melody like we have refused to this day to concede which version of the melody it is (laughs) 
but I really like it. It gives it a heterophonic feeling where we're both playing the same thing, but we have our own variation that fits together. Yeah, I think that not all tunes are as well suited as others for this kind of treatment that we're talking mm-hmm. about, right? Yeah. And so when you're writing tunes, things are you can steer them into that direction and, um, like you say, craft them so that they will fit that, that need.
was it received when you started playing around the Midwest where people are used to dancing to a lot of old time? What was that like for you? Ah, so, um, so in the, in the beginning, uh, there we, it was very, it was very mixed reception. Um, there, we had a lot of detractors for a long time, uh, especially on the, like we had some, tra oh, on our, I think it's also on our first album, AMJ, uh, was a track that we, we played that every dance. Matt and I played that before Miriam joined. Um, and we played that at every dance and we would have dancers come up to us and tell us how they could not dance to it. And they were like, don't ever play that again here. We can't hear the phrasing, like, what are you doing? This isn't contra dance music. Um, so it was, yeah, so they were not into, and what, there was even a phrase for it. Like they, they labeled us several, like some of the organizers out there labeled us as something, and I don't remember what it was. It wasn't like newfangled, but it, you know, they, they didn't consider us like anything like the normal bands because we didn't just play the melody the whole time. And we played like all this, we were trying to get them to dance to these other rhythms and it was too like yeah like amorphous would be the word i would use i don't remember um but it's okay they all we won them over <laughs> we also learned a lot i mean we made a lot of mistakes back then you know we would do the like the trancy thing and the caller wouldn't be able to figure out where the a and the b sections were mm -hmm. uh, so we learned a lot talk a lot about that and had to learn how to like even in the tunes that where it's very amorphous, we had to learn to make the either the very end of the phrase, last bar, or the start of the new one very clear. Like you can be amorphous for the middle six bars, <laughs> but the, the last one and the first ones need to be very clear, um, which also was something that led me very much into my DR Shadow electronic work as well. Like be, you have to be able to know where those phrases are. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we you know, learned a lot about one, all those things. Uh, and then, so you know, it took us several years, um, but you know, it actually didn't take us all that long. So we, I had set out with the idea that I really wanted the Mean Lids to be a, a weekend band. Like I wanted to play dance weekends and, and camps and festivals. Um, and I didn't just want to play all the local dances. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, I was on the trajectory of graduating with my doctorate um, and at the University of Illinois, you don't get a job there if you graduated from there, uh, at least in my program. So I knew I was going to have to leave. And if I mm -hmm. left, it meant we weren't going to be able to play the $50 Friday night dance. Uh, we were going to mm -hmm. have to get the big traveling gigs. So I was pushing us hard to get to that point. And so 2012, we played a uh, little weekend in um, Squirrel Moon in Wisconsin. Really adorable little weekend. If it's still going on and you need to get to Wisconsin, you should absolutely look that one up and go to it. Um, it's super fun. Uh, so we got that one. And then um, an organizer from Utah uh, was at that dance and heard us and then offered us our first flying gig uh, to go out to Utah in 2013. Yeah, it was 2013. Um, and I was so pumped. And it was like a existential moment for the band because we suddenly realized like what Trout, what like flying to a gig was going to mean. Um, you know, you have to like, you have to be able to be a band that can like get away for a weekend and you need to take time off of your day jobs and mm -hmm. plane tickets. And also, it's the same weekend as Sugar Hill, which like we hadn't missed in like 10 years. So, anyways, so we decided to do it. We did it. Uh, and that was the launch us on our, our career of playing bigger, bigger events. Um, and yeah, 
then people from there heard us on the West Coast and East Coast people picked us up. And, you know, that was the, that was, yeah, it was the beginning of awesome things. Um, so how long did it take us? Five years? Yeah. It was, we, had, we had to do some time there in the, in the, on the road to, oh, yeah. to get up to that level. Uh, also, there was no, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a unique path for everybody. Um, but the Midwest, there weren't, we didn't have any other bands to like talk to about it. You know, there were, mm. there were no other weekend bands from the Midwest at that point. Well, that's not true. I mean, there's Sam Bartlett. He's like in all the bands. Right. <laughs> but bands that and were... he still, you know, he still had a lot of New England roots at that point. Yeah. You know, yeah. Even though he's living there, a lot of his bandmates are not from there. We felt homegrown, entirely located in Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting talking about electronic music because, of course, this is going to come up, which I'm looking forward to talking about. Yeah. It's like how you got started doing DR Shadow and what inspired you to do it. Because, you know, especially thinking about the elements of writing electronic music and when you're talking about in the mean lids, how you will kind of vary the arrangement by like taking elements in and out and like that's something that is a very classical way to do things in electronic music is like you've got all these different elements you can add them you can remove them you can modify them put them back in and so there's a lot of commonalities there mm -hmm. and so it'd be fun to dive into those parallels a little bit um but yeah so just how did you get started doing that what was your impetus there yeah so my impetus was uh, whenever around like 2010 or whatever, the, uh, there was a, a resurgence of the, uh, techno contra, uh, idea, uh, it was catching hold. Uh, you know, we were seeing it in, you know, at, at leaf and, uh, uh, in the, up at YDW and, um, the, uh, other people, I don't remember all of the who was starting at what times, but there was lots of players. There was a lot of interest in this. Um, there would be a, at a dance weekend. There'd be the midnight, uh, you know, dance to DJ music um, by various, you know, young whippersnappers such as ourselves, um, getting up there and doing it. Uh, and I was very interested in this because I'd long felt that there was a very, um, very parallel connection between that that like trance state in a contra dance like that i can get to in like a really good contra dance um you know where i'm just like my frontal cortex kind of like shuts off and i just am transported for a little while um so that in the and we've talked about this in the contra dance world um paralleled with very similar experience dancing to electronic dance music and more of the like rave side of things um again of just like being completely transported by the by the music. Um, and so for a long, long time, I'd felt that the, the two could work together uh, mm -hmm. and perpetually motion very much in the, like still with acoustic instruments was entirely dabbling in the, not just dabbling, just straight out playing in that space. Um, yeah. You know, pulling in those electronic elements and looping and like really putting it to the forefront. Like you're obviously you're doing it. There've been other bands, um, you know, Clayfoot Strutters, they had pedals, you know, they had electric guitars. There was, you know, things were happening in the fabric of their sound. Um, but anyway, so about a decade ago, this is like all happening. And I'm, I went to every single one that I was, that I could, um, that I was at and danced to all of it. Um, you had some great dances, dancing to Michael Jackson and, uh, you know, some, um, 
yeah, uh, Ariana Grande, like what, you know, yeah. all these things that were getting mixed into the contra dance. Um, but then I'll tell you, I started to get frustrated that uh, we were dancing contra dance with music that was not, not intended for the space, like was being co-opted from an entirely different musical environment um, and often did not have the phrasing that would line up with the dance. So we'd be dancing right. along and be coming up to like, here's the, here's the long lines or like, here's the big balance. And the music would not have the balance. And then there'd just be like, there'd be this gap. And then while we were in the halfway through a swing, the music would be like, boom, boom, boom. This would be a balance time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but because that's not how the songs were arranged. So I was like, well, I, can, I do electronic music. Can I take this back and figure out a way to write tracks that, that marry the, at the time I was, really heavily into and it just actually it just started coming out uh the genre of deep house uh and yeah. tech house which just like took over the world um of electronic music uh and i loved the so for i assume most of our listeners are not steeped in the, the deep house space um there's often those tracks are very are very simple there's just like one drum pattern that goes through the whole track uh and there's a bass line that is what they call a, a pluck bass or a plunk bass um that sounds a lot like an upright bass but it's electronic uh and again they're very simple and it's like focuses on this like syncopated kind of melodic bass line and then there'll be other upper parts sort of like there'll be some chords or it'll be like what they call little stabs like organ hits um not usually melody driven at all but it's like the rhythm and then just like cool 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 bass line just like huge but with a lot of space it's not usually well there's two two sort of two styles of deep house but the kind that i like has this like really spacious spacious as in there's a lot of rest, rests between the notes but plunky bass lines um so it's like can i take that kind of a sound and then like figure out how to get a banjo and a fiddle on top of it um and initially i thought i'm just going to use archival sounds like from library of congress recordings uh and i don't like i'm not going to record myself i just want to use these like appalachian fiddle players uh so the first track i made had hobart smith old appalachian fiddle player playing cluck old hen uh, and i just sampled that in the same way that the djs and producers would sample uh you know old vinyl recordings uh, and made that into a track but then spent like a year trying to figure out how to make an eight bar phrase where the end of the phrase is really indicated by like everything in the track that i can like there has to be like a drum the drum pattern has to have a little break in it to indicate that this is the end of the phrase the bass line has to have clearly like either resolved or come to a mm -hmm. pause point like everything so it's always eight bars eight bars eight bars eight bars it sounds like a like a like a kind of it doesn't sound like it's that fun but when you're dancing you don't notice that like it sounds like it just keeps on going and it just keeps on driving and building and all uh and there's all those sonic cues in there to help the dancers just always stay in so they know when to get out of the swing right, right? Or, or um yeah they're almost subliminal cues at that level right yeah. where we're building them into the electronic music to kind of try to balance out what we're not able to do live mm -hmm. right oh and the other the other part though is that a lot of these were pre-mixed tracks that were just like three songs mixed and the dj was up there hitting play and then yeah. we danced to it and i wanted it to be live uh, and, yeah. and you wanted it to be live um yeah. i know because we i mean at the same time you were doing the launching the buddy system techno dances um or maybe you predated me by a year or two. I don't remember. Uh, but it, you did the same thing, like making it live and making it phrased, you know, and like being able to to do things live on stage in response to what this 
dance hall is doing, what these dancers are doing. Yeah, honestly, I was really excited when you came along because I had been doing like the double apex thing and then the uh, fire club yes. thing and then buddy system. And I was like, is anybody else going to do this? Please, somebody do this. I want someone to do it different than me and maybe better than me or just different. But like, there's so many different ways to approach the same variables, right? Yeah. The variables of like, we need to create a cool dance experience that's still trancy, but it keeps the phrasing. There has to be some live component, but you can't do it all live or else you don't have time to lay down that many loops in you a contra live dance. Yeah. You know, like it's just, you know, Perpetually Motion really did an amazing job pushing the limits of what you can do with looping and built mm -hmm. looping. But that has limitations, too, because in eight minutes, you have to follow a very tight timeline to be able to build, get your loops down and layer them and build your arc. And so, you know, some of their best arrangements, it had to go the same way every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. like when they did Flying Tent, we all knew how it was going to go. Yep. And that was part of the fun. That was not a bad thing at all, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. But if you want that flexibility to be able to play with the energy in the hall, like we were talking about before, I was like, oh, we can't live loop everything. It's not possible. Anyway, um, I was really <laughs> excited to see you come along because it's like, I can't wait to see how Ben is going to approach the same thing and play around with this format, which is really fun. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. And the... What I've found since I, so I don't, I don't do any live looping. I play live banjo and fiddle with my tracks um, and I have it all sliced up, use Ableton. Um, and so I can, you know, I can skip scenes and I can like add more drums or take them away or whatever, you know, and do filter effects and stuff live on stage. Um, but I, I quickly, and I also had wrestled with this as a classical composer for electronic composer for a long time is what is that? What is the notion of liveness, and what is that experience? What does that? What does the audience need to know? Because, um, like, all right, classic example is uh, pop singers who are lip syncing to their own tracks, right? Right. They, for years and years and years, and still today, I'm sure it's still that's got to be standard practice in a lot of places. It doesn't matter. Like you're there for the show, for the awesome show, and they sang it once, right? They did sing it, and you're seeing them on stage performing it for you and whether or not it's actually their vocal cords vibrating at that moment that you're hearing or you're hearing a recorded version of them like i mean it fools us right we still think it's live that's great i'm all in for that right <laughs> i mean we all know they can't dance like that in those yeah. outfits you can't like dance upside down while your your backup uh -huh. dancers are flipping you upside down in a corset and fishnets and have perfect like pitch and, and tone control like we all know that's not possible yeah, right let alone like, the, unless you're beyonce yeah. maybe <laughs> the vocal production of like those are all recorded with super nice you know studio mics and pop filters and all yeah. and now you're expecting them to have like a either like a little headset mic or like one in their hair or something in the costume that's not going to pick up that doesn't sound right. like it it sound terrible um but anyway so yeah the the notion of liveness on a on a contra dance stage and i mostly because of just sort of functional reasons, but I can very much justify it sort of philosophically, uh, is I can play, I'll, so I'll start out a track and I'll play the melody on the banjo, and then second time through, I'll I'll hit and, and launch, uh, play the pre-recorded version of me playing that banjo part, and then I switch mm. to playing like the counter melody or something. The pre-recorded version is exactly what I just played, maybe slightly a couple notes are different, but no one knows, it doesn't matter. That it's, it's like you're live looping with your past self in a sense yes, like you're replacing uh -huh. a 
It would be as if you would just put that loop down, except it's not a live loop. It's a loop from before. Right. It gives me a little bit, it gives me a safety net. So that was like the functional part is if I mess something, if I mess up and I won't mess up playing the banjo usually, I would mess up the recording. Like I would start recording yeah. one bar in the second bar and miss the first bar or whatever. Um, like that kind of stuff I can't deal with on stage and dancers have no tolerance for mistakes in that in that case, right? You have to, if you're on the stage, right. you have to deliver a really solid musical set. <laughs> right, the rhythm and the phrasing can't get disturbed too much else it throws the whole dance yeah. off. Yeah, you can't have a and nine bar phrase somewhere just because you forgot no. to hit record. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> and it, it is true, and even like in, you know, both of us working in Ableton Live, there's a lot of cool quantization and phrase alignment things where you can't screw it up too much but the way that ed and john and perpetually motion were looping with like looping pedals there are a lot more things that can go wrong yeah you know because if you tap your foot off by a fraction of a second then your loop isn't the same length like it kind of gets longer every single time because it's not the uh -huh. right length yep. and all these weird things can happen you know and using ableton live eliminated a lot of that problem for me at least my loops are always the right length but you can get the phrases in the wrong place yep. and that's weird mm -hmm. yeah i thought a lot about when i was setting it up thinking about the sort of like safety nets and and fallbacks um that we have when we're playing acoustic music we can do that so if something goes wrong in the dance like the the caller uh somehow messes it up and like you know this it doesn't happen all the time but we, we have memorable moments of either the caller calls the wrong thing or you know, somehow extends a swing too long, you know, two bars too long. Uh, as acoustic musicians, at, you know, if, if we've done this enough time, uh, we know how to add two bars in uh, to, you know, to get back to the right point. Or we get the, we, all right, or the mean lids, quite often, not quite often, it's happened a few times, let's say, we'll be in a really trancy space uh, and we'll just be on one chord and we will drop the melody altogether, great rhythm, just just jamming on this drone, uh, and then we won't remember where the A part is. <laughs> so you have to get the caller to, who's usually sitting there looking at the next card they're gonna call or whatever, trying to pick it out and be like, hey, uh, can you just tell us where the, the top of the A part is or what section we're in or whatever, you know? So then they, you know, we communicate and then uh, we get back on. I mean, not like nobody, nobody knew other than us in our minds were like, shoot, we just played five A's in a row. <laughs> Um, but in the electronic music world, how do you recover from those things as well? Um, and so I, in building out my sets, thought a lot about, okay, so if any, I don't care whose mistake it is, but if somehow the dance gets off from the music, how do I recover from that? Um, actually, I ended up writing some Ableton Live devices that would jump all of my tracks an arbitrary number of beats forward or backwards at the click of a button. So I could be like, okay, I'm going to have to jump six beats forward right now. Go. And it just, they all jump. Did you do that as like a Max for Live device yeah. or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. And I've had to use it a couple of times when a caller. Wow. Because I mean, I'm sure you found this too. Um, electronic music is not what most of the ContraPulse listeners probably, if you're listening to this on Spotify, your rest of your playlists are probably not electronic music. Um, so it's, and, and I love, and this is like, I feel this is like a new dr direction in Contra music that I, I just love the incorporation of all of these other influences and styles of music, um, but I can't I can't imagine because I don't call. But I can't. But as a caller, if you don't listen to this music all the time, it's got to be like a total mind mess to uh, 
to like figure out where these phrasings are when you don't have standard New England or any kind of melody on top of it. Um, so yeah. I've had oftentimes had callers who have called me the first time will let the swing go for 12 bar or 12 beats, you know, and so each time through like the first three times I'm having to jump all oh. my tracks <laughs> four bars. Because they don't realize they're like waiting for the music. Yeah, they're waiting for something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. been a lot of, a lot of, I have to do a lot of like corrections. And then I'm of course very pleased that I have the device sitting there in my system to be able to seamlessly just catch that up and no one needs to know no one needs to care everybody's having a great time also the lights are low and no one can really see anything very well <laughs> yeah right that really helps yeah uh, no one can see the look on your face i'm making my squinty face at the computer like oh i messed this thing up how can i get this off or in ableton i would have my set quantized to four beat loops so that i couldn't accidentally get off by half a phrase uh-huh and then the caller would get off I know. by two beats. Yes. And then I'm like, okay, I'm permanently off from you and there's no way to fix it. And finally I realized I just had to turn off all my quantization and just hit the space bar really fast Twice. at the right moment, Let's toggle go. it Bop. off and on, which is the most terrifying <laughs> thing to do. And so then I was like, oh, I need a solution for that. And so then I worked in new ways into my set of doing that uh-huh. and automating that with a knob. And anyway, but... You know, I have to say to our listeners, you know, like ContraPulse so far, we've mostly focused on acoustic music. We've talked about techno contra a little bit here and there, but this is our first deep dive. And I feel like you and I could geek out about this way past anybody's interest levels. <laughs> but I, I imagine that it might seem like, why do you do all this work with all this fancy gear, just to try to recreate the simple live music of just playing tunes, you know, <laughs> that you can do on the fly. But of course, we know why, because it's fun. And it's a challenge. And I like the sounds of electronic yeah. music. And I like the way you can compose things in advance. And, you know, but it does seem like, what What are they talking about? Like, when you get off and you can't fix it, so you have to write a special app to help you fix it, because you're not a human in that moment, you know, like... So what what are the rewards for you? Why is it all worth it? <laughs> um, because I love dancing to electronic music and I love dancing to contra dance music and I love dancing to the two of them when they get smooshed together. Uh, and I like listening to it. Like musically, I find it really interesting to hear the world of our, our folk music um, blended with this what is really a like a contemporary folk music like edm is written by young youngish people such as myself but younger than me usually um uh in their in their bedrooms and in their basements uh yeah. I, you know i was teaching them for for years here at the university uh and they they their their whole community is you know they're on soundcloud and they're on Bandcamp, and you know they're all over the internet like sharing these tracks and and coming up with new, new style variations and new tricks. And there's a million YouTube videos about how to do, you know, these different design, different sounds. So like that's yeah. a whole, there's a whole community and that is a modern folk music. I mean, people will talk about it as such in, you know, whatever hundred years when we can finally look back and, and say it was like a, you know, ethnomusicology thing. Um, with our, you know, with this acoustic folk music, uh, and it's the sounds of those two when they're when they are put together really well, I, just, I find it so compelling. It's like so interesting. Mm-hmm. Like two parts of my musical brain uh, both get activated simultaneously. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
I, I love that. And then the way that we've, so I, and this is where we could totally geek out for a while, um, is how that music is being accepted or sort of coming into the contra dance practice and the way that mm -hmm. events are set up and the way that it's build it's kind of like how it's messaged uh, and how it's experienced in this space um i find that really fascinating but at the end of the when all is said and done and we're at the dance and it's either late at night or in the afternoon or whatever uh right the last time that we were at you know at uh, flurry 2020 um that the the dance hall um set where i did the the uh, electro dance uh just packed with people and it was hot and sweaty and yeah. it was just with the lights where the, the crew that did the lights there was awesome and, and the sound yeah. was amazing like that was such an exhilarating hour and a half like yeah what was created right there everybody coming together and doing that was i it was something something new and different that we had created there and absolutely just for that you know it doesn't have to be for everybody you know, lots of, I, you know, lot, I love dancing to old time music at Contranesis and I love dancing to the more new England, whatever variations you want, whatever buckets you want to put it all in. I love all of that. And I love finding new ways to like create these really powerful music dance experiences. Yeah, it's just a different flavor. It's a different way of bringing out a different facet of this tradition and activity that we already love, right? Like, yeah, I, you know, having played so many of those like late night flurry electronic conchas and then also playing in the live room, mm -hmm. in the main hall, yeah. they're just a different feel. You know, everybody's closer together and the light's darker and it, it's just a different event. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think any of us, at least not you or I, are trying to replace live music with electronic music which is i feel like something that sometimes people might be concerned about you know it's just a different yeah. flavor no yeah no absolutely not at all i don't think we're anywhere yeah. near the saturation point where we'd start having to edge out acoustic musicians i'm i'm more like i don't know if if you are talking about this on this podcast but yeah, we would start out as the phoenix right so the phoenix is going to come back um i'm really interested in to see what the all these music, all of us, all of us musicians who have had kind of, well, definitely not played as many contra dances as we used to. Um, what what are we going to come back with? Like new influences? Uh, are there new bands? Um, yeah. You know, is there? Are there? Are there going to be like? Are there new dancers? Like, presumably not as many new dancers, given the pandemic as there would have usually been. But there must be some. So, like, what is? There's going to be so many new things. Yeah. And maybe also this feeling of rustiness, of like, what were we doing? And why were we doing this? And also, like, why was this musical thing so important to me then? Now I want to do something different, you know? Like, yeah. some of us may end up abandoning some ideas of, like, I really like this tune then or this fancy arrangement, but now all I want to do is X or whatever, yeah. you know? Who knows? Uh -huh. It'll be really interesting. And. You know, some of us are still continuing to listen to traditional music and contra music, and some of us <laughs> aren't. Some of us don't listen to dance music when we're not dancing. Some of us do, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's a chance for, are we going to be more pop-inspired when we come back or whatever we've been listening to? You know, who knows? Yeah. It's an interesting question. But I, I think, 
like for me, being able to create this electronic music is dependent upon there being a thriving live acoustic concert tradition. Yeah, yeah. I only would do the electronic music because the other tradition is live and healthy and thriving and flourishing and full of innovation and variation. And that's what makes this other electronic thing possible. Mm-hmm. And that's what yeah, makes yeah. it fun. Yep. Yeah. And that's, and that's also, as, as I said, you know, I originally started up just to use like Library of Cong- Congress recordings uh, and uh, call if all, of, all of you who are listening to ContraPulse, go, go find a DR Shadow track, if you will, uh, and listen to it. Um, because then I, you know, so in the electronic world, they are sampling recordings and using them in hip hop, hip hop and that stuff. And I said, started out, I was like, you know what? Nightingale just retired, Crowfoot just retired, like you can't dance to them anymore. Um, I'm yeah. gonna sample their recordings and put them in. So uh, so my, the, the first, I think it's the first track on my own, I don't remember. Anyways, uh, it's called First Chance uh, and it samples Nightingale. And that, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of the, the track is it's Nightingale samples and it's electronic uh, music that I produced. Uh, I've got another track with some, with, Oh, actually, I couldn't release the Crowfoot one because they didn't give me permission to sell it, but Nightingale did. Thank you. 
So sampling the acoustic bands, and those are meaningful because those are our bands. Those are our contra dance bands. I danced to that track when Nightingale played it, and now I sample it and play it electronically, and that's really the significance of it to me. I'm not just sampling any music, and it, none of that would be as meaningful if we didn't have the acoustic band playing also. 
Yeah, you know, they, they, yeah. those have the yeah. This is a this is maybe someday in the no. We're going to have acoustic music forever. It's actually someday when we don't have electricity anymore, we'll only have our acoustic instruments, and we will learn. Actually, all right. So this is kind of a funny circle. <laughs> funny circle to this um, is so I did. Uh, so I've also sampled my own band, Mean Lids, playing "Glory in the Meeting House," an old time tune, uh, and I yeah. have that as a track. Um, well, I do this thing in the B part of it in the electronic version where I cut the melody into like just the first three beats and then do that little like syncopated loop of just that little pattern and it's a li- just a little scale running up um well now matt when we play that tune sometimes when he plays the b part he will play that that cut version the chopped up version he plays it acoustically on the fiddle <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah, Noah and I have done that too with Buddy System. We'll come up with some electronic motif and then we'll just start playing it on our instruments yep. at a regular contra, you know? Yeah. It's fun. I, I feel like it's a writing this kind of music is like a musical playground and you can experiment with so many things that you can't do when you have to play everything live. And like for me, I also love Tech House and Deep House, especially. And I think they're really well suited to Contra because they naturally have this kind of phrasing mm-hmm. to them, this like intrinsic rhythm. And they're just generally they they're they feel good, you know? Yeah. They can the sounds are good. It's not like dubstep where it's a little more aggressive. Yep. I mean Tech House can be aggressive, but the bass sounds so good. It's like thick and warm mm-hmm. and as a piano player, I would just naturally want to, like, I would often play a bass line on my left hand and chord stabs on my right hand. But there's only so many bass planes I can play on the piano. It always sounds like a piano. I, I yeah. was not interested in acoustically. I could have gotten a MIDI box and done that, but I just wasn't interested in that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what doing these other electronic things is for. But being able to program a bass line that is unplayable by human hands yeah. or, you know, just is going to crank out and be perfect while you're trying to do other things. Because sometimes when you're doing two or three things at once, they all suffer for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yeah. And just being able to get into those sub bass frequencies, which I think is very trance inducing. Yep. Yeah. Um, which, you know, most of our instruments don't go to. That's why people really love octave pedals. Uh-huh. You know, I know you've used one for your violin before. Yep. And being able to go down there um, is really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I know this is your interview, but I'm curious what you think about this is that for me, I get kind of soapboxy about the word evolution in terms of music, Mm -hmm. especially. And, you know, just like you have a background from like the computer electronics end of things, I have the background of a biological thing end of things. And I don't like talking about electronic music as an evolution of contra music. Uh In a sense it is, but a lot of us misunderstand what evolution really means in like popular culture because it's been kind of misconstrued as like a linear progress towards a better outcome, Mm -hmm. you know, like it keeps improving, improving, improving over time. And, you know, real evolution isn't intentional. They're just mutations that accumulate and sometimes they suit their environment and then are a benefit and then become very popular. But then if the environment changes, they're no longer at like adaptive and then they disappear again. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, electronic music is an evolution, but I never mean that it's better we're not improving on anything you know that's not the point right 
Yeah. So, if, so my understanding is that evolution is that it's a it's a response to environmental stimuli and stresses, right? And we typically see it as one species is responding to those environmental changes, which leads to a species change as a whole because the older pre-evolved version can't survive. Like as the planet gets warmer, as it is, some species are going to fail to survive or fail to evolve to the warmer or whatever situation, uh, and then they will just die off. Right, but it's not an it's not an intentional process. Like a species can't decide to evolve. <laughs> you know, like they talk yeah. about that even articles about COVID. They're like, oh, this COVID has just become more virulent. It's decided to be this, and I'm like, no, it hasn't decided. Random it happened exactly. It happened to accumulate this random mutation that happens to be favored in the circumstance and uh -huh. happens to spread more because it is now more virulent or transmissible or whatever. You know, and so. Oh, okay, so. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. And in this case, I think, um, well, we're doing things intentionally, so it's hard for us to right. see that. But if we, you could step out and use a statistical model to look at how the sound <laughs> is changing. Um, but uh, I don't think the environment, we'd have to quantify, I would have to, I'd want to know what the environmental stimuli that might be forcing the change is, uh, which I don't think is, I don't think it's here. Like, are the acoustic bands in any danger of being wiped out by this new strain of electronic contra dance music that is decided to uh, become more virulent? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. At least that's not our goal. And if people think that that's it, our goal, it's definitely no, not no, our no. goal. No. The, you know? I think the, the, the bands are doing great. Um, I, one, like one area that I do think about as a uh, sort of like an agent for my own bands uh, is one of the environmental stressors is uh, just budgets for events and travel mm -hmm. budgets. So you saw, you see, I mean, I don't actually have the hard data, but you look back and see that bands like Clayfoot Strutters, which carried a lot of people, uh, sort of like were less tenable than Perpetually Motion, which is two people. Like mm -hmm. they were able to travel and play everywhere. Uh, and and I think also like Mean Lids, well, and you play in a duo and had, had trios, um, the three person in terms of the, the contra dance space, like that's a that's a price point at which a lot of medium and smaller weekends can afford to bring us out. And if we mm -hmm. had five people, mm, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be as attractive. We'd be spending a lot of budget just on travel. Um, so that yeah. that's like an environmental stressor, right? That would cause an evolution in the way that contra dance bands are formed. Yeah, and, and that's not why we're playing electronic music because you, as one person, yeah. could theoretically get paid three times as much as what the Mean Lids does per person. Right. Like if say there's a gig that pays two hundred bucks, Mean Lids does it. You come up with two hundred divided by three versus you do it by yourself as DR Shadow. You get the get whole all. amount, but that's yeah. not why. We're doing it. Not and at all, no. <laughs> we don't want to, like, I don't think any band should kind of put market pressure on, like, that works against larger bands. I think it's it should ultimately be up to what the dancers and organizers want and can afford. You know, but there have been stories of, you know, some smaller groups asking for more per person. You know, if you're like, oh, we're a duo, we're doing more work, therefore we should get paid yeah. more per person. And yeah, yeah. people in six-piece bands getting paid less per person. And it's uh, it gets dicey sometimes. Mm -hmm. we'll have to do, you have to do a, a ContraPulse business segment sometime. 
Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> it's fun to uh, talk about the things that we love about why we do it and not worry about all these logistics, right? Exactly. No, no, it's, it's all, it has to be rooted in our, in the heart and in our passions. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as we, we just spent a bunch of time here talking about how hard it is to write electronic music to fit into the contradance scene. Uh, but we do it because we're passionate about it and we can't stop. Right. And honestly, I don't think it's okay. Soapbox number two. I'm curious what you think about this. I don't think that at its heart, playing electronic music for dances has to be that different than the feeling of playing chestnuts for dances. Because one of the fun things about doing chestnuts, and I've seen this like at dances like Gilman's in New Hampshire, you go to their dance, you play chorus jig. Everybody sings along mm-hmm. to the da 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 da. You know that's that money musk. You know it. Everybody yeah. knows it. That feeling of familiarity. And for years, lots of people. I mean, that's where singing squares come from. Golden slippers and the pop songs of the day. And then you know, Beatles contras were really big and have been big for a long time. And mm-hmm. you know, how is this different? We're just taking our musical vocabulary that surrounds us, our milieu, and we're taking it to a place where it feels familiar and combining it with something that we like. I like it. I'm I'm sold. I'll buy yeah, that. So. Um, for me, yeah. it honestly comes out of that same instinct. It's just so fun to see a bunch of people dancing and then singing along with something that they know, too. It's really fun. Yeah. And now we see, you know, shout out to Emily Rush and her Rush Fest. People are singing exactly. along. They sing along the whole time. <laughs> exactly. It's so fun. You know, yeah. and like, I, I also often wonder, like, we've had this huge diversity of tunes in contra music now like it's less of these workhorse tunes that everybody knows and more of like new compositions and every band has a different repertoire of their own tunes and for the dancers it means that they don't know all the tunes and can sing along with them except that some of them are so iconic that if you start to follow these bands around like great bears fans know their tunes better than just about any fan i mean it's weird to call them fans they're dancers you know but like those dancers sing along with their compositions. Yep. Da 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 da, Cosmic Tim or yep. whatever. Mm-hmm. Just like it's chorus jig. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. In you know, in terms of what what happens with you know the future of, of contra dance music and all that kind of stuff, um, I'm fascinated to find out what other influences come in. You know, like I there's so I, I listen to so much music and I like listening to it. I'm not passionate about writing it into a contra dance thing, but I hope somebody else is. Like, I, I want to dance to music that brings in all those influences. I was thinking just like in terms of, uh, you know, like um, accompaniment, like backup rhythms um, that that we hear all the time in in contra dance, at least in the kind of music that we play. Um, and it's nothing like the what it would have, you know, what you would have heard at a at an acoustic contra dance in the you know the '80s, say. You know, guitars had a rhythm they, you know, they played pretty straight ahead. Um, and now we're, I don't even know what, like, rhythms Matt is playing most of the time. I mean, it's some sort of, like, Central American Zimbabwean smash-up of, like, syncopated hmm. threes against other things. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's awesome. You know, it just, like, it's just set different, you know, different rhythms that we hear in all the music we listen to just filtering into 
what comes out of our fingers. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not uh, boom check. No, it's not. It's fun to dance to. So I'm all, I'm all yeah. about it. Yeah. And there's probably some people who prefer dancing to the more traditional backup. Oh, certainly. And that's, I love, and that's fine. I love that too. You know? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I want, I want to, I want it all. Exactly. But then this other thing is also really fun to dance to. Do you ever worry about what is traditional and like how far you would go or like, do you, I don't know, do you think about that when you're like creating your electronic compositions or doing weird things? Um, so the only problem that the, the only way I do think about that, and let me get, I'll get back to, I think the essence of your question in a second, uh, is the, in the world of electric, so, and also ties back to like, so you're just playing the fiddle. Like what is your, what is your dynamic range? What is the loudest, fullest, most aggressive version of a tune you can play? And what's the like most quietest, gentlest, sweetest version of it in the electronic space? Like it's almost unbound, like the outer edges of what is the most aggressive, wild thing you could make versus the sweetest thing is like huge in any way you could possibly think to parse that. Um, so that's a thing I think about a lot is like, so DR shadow, I'm very much trying to find the sort of sonic space that I work in and like limit it. Like there's like what I think of as like three subtle variations of baseline types that I, that I use, like just in terms mm -hmm. of like the synthesis sound. So an actual sampled acoustic bass, a piano, and then well, actually I have two kinds of electronic basses. Um, but I limit my palette to that because I have mm -hmm. to set guardrails and you have to know this is DR Shadow's sonic space and this is the way he works he's not just suddenly going to have some some crazy you know dubstep thing is it's just not going to happen right. in the set right. um so like that that in terms of like crazy things i might do for each project i have to think like where where am i what are how am i going to define that landscape what's my color palette and then try to stay within that in the same way that if i'm playing the fiddle the fiddle can only do so many things and you always know it's a fiddle um in terms of the traditional uh versus like exploratory or whatever. Um, I'm really not, I'm really not worried about it at all. I don't think about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's in, I, I think that, um, I love the, I love things that are music that is a tradition. Uh, I love playing in old time jam circles where people are out, you know, out here in the Midwest, we have, uh, the battleground fiddle festival and it was where, and uh, cliff top, you know, where, where the practitioners of the tradition, um, come together and play the traditional tunes in the traditional styles, uh, you know, in a very um, the communal way. And you know, you you wouldn't go, I, there'd be, you wouldn't play electronic music there. You know, I wouldn't even bring my baritone fiddle there. That, that's not a traditional instrument. You play a regular fiddle, uh, and I love that. And I want those things to be preserved, and I want that tradition to stay alive and be passed on. And I'll, I'm a part of that tradition and I play traditional banjo and I'll play it in a traditional style, but I can wear two hats. Ha <laughs> ha, back to my, back to the bands. Um, I will do that. And then I'll also be an experimental DJ. Like I don't yeah. have any conflict internally. You know, I, I can love fast food and I can love gourmet, you know, dinners. <laughs> I have yeah. no issue loving them both. Yeah, absolutely.
wonder sometimes if like the sign of a healthy tradition is that we don't have to worry about whether it's traditional or not while we're doing it, mm-hmm. you know, because like the, the people are, there's so many great contrabands just playing acoustic music. I don't have to worry about like, well, is this traditional or what is this going to do? You know, I'm like, hey, let's try this thing and just have fun with it and see what happens. Yeah. You know, the main thing that I always want to know is, does different kind of music change the way that people treat each other on the dance floor? Oh. Oh, what do you mean? All right. What what are you thinking in terms of treat? Well, I have (laughs) noticed experimenting with all sorts of different kinds of electronic music. And, Uh you know, I also tried like sampling things in the beginning, first of all, because it takes forever to write electronic tracks. So in the beginning, I just wanted to learn how to do it. So I would Uh sample stuff because it was easier while I was writing things at home. But like the music affects how people dance and some music, sometimes they flourish more or are more focused on their partner experience yeah other times they're more focused on the whole group experience you know and because the sonic Mm. palette is so much wider so can like it can be gritty it can be almost violent if electronic music can be if you want it to be yeah you know and obviously i'm not gonna play dubstep i did sample some skrillex once for a techno contract because i was just really curious what would happen you know anyway uh-huh. <laughs> i'd be curious have, have you noticed do, do people dance differently or like because it's a different vibe also like the lighting to me is a big part of it you know like often organizers would want us to do a techno contra while we were at a dance weekend but they're like well we don't have any lights and it has to be at three in the afternoon and i was like I know we tried it <laughs> once and it was just so weird because it's yeah. all it's the atmosphere to help build this trance like space and it's a more mm-hmm. like introspective space and so you need the lights and the late night also helps because your brain waves are different at night and mm-hmm. you know everything so anyway, I'm just curious what have you noticed well I, I yes I mean absolutely people do and I think they yeah they both dance differently and then as you say, treat each other differently. I mean, you see that just if you play like a more sort of an, like an English country style set, you know, play like some like lighter tunes for a dance versus, you know, playing like some of some of uh, some of Noah's original compositions, you know, in Buddy System. <laughs> like it's a very different thing. Some, you know, people are either going to be more like, gl- you know, gliding kind of like, you know, gentle, uh, you know, light, lighter, lighter weight in the hands versus like full on like jumping up and down, um, you know, dancing. Uh, so from from that, then, yeah, absolutely. The electronic music. Um, I don't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I've never actually seen a like mosh contra, but I'm sure you could do it if if everybody agreed. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm not at all you know concerned. I've never I've never seen violence on the contra floor that I'd be at all concerned about. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> but the uh, I do think though, again, getting to the like like trancey. So I have several. DR shadow sets that are very that break down to a very smooth again very drone like and then like build it up layers and layers and layers of you know strings and rhythm and little 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 bits um, and I you see I see dancers yeah like the you know I think the squares like get a little closer together like when there's when they're circling you know because you just mm. don't want to move as far and you you know you want to be more like side to side kind of gliding um, versus other tracks that have a you know much more of that deep house like very syncopated bass line you get people like just moving further 
Yeah. So I think it very much does. I've been, I've, hey, I want to get back out and do some more contra dances so I can observe and uh, right? see if I can see what's happening. <laughs> that would be fun. It's like, you know, for me, I just, it's like, just like you wanted to do this, but keep that live element. Cause to you, that's a really important thing mm-hmm. of that connection with the live music and the dancers and the caller together, Yeah, which is also important to me, even though we ended up approaching it from different ways, like technologically, um, also cause you're a melody player and I'm not, and that <laughs> really changes what each of us can do. Yep. Um, but for me, I also don't want to lose that connection of somehow, somewhere, this is fundamentally a community dance where people are looking out for each other and taking good care of each other yeah. on the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is more important than the tradition of like, what does this tune sound like? And because we would play tunes with electronic beats over them. And sometimes I'm like, this is not a necessarily a good look for this tune. Like, I know we're abusing this tune by doing all these weird things to it. <laughs> yep. But yep. that's not the tradition I'm trying to uphold in that moment. It's, is this still a community dance where we're all dancing together in the hall yeah. as opposed to like a partner dance or an individual dance, like at a club where you're dancing mm-hmm. by yourself mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want. Um, what kind of things are you thinking about? Like while you're up on stage and you're like watching the hall and adapting in the moment, what am I thinking about? Well, I, uh, I'm, so there's usually actually it's kind of like a phased thing when I'm when I'm so it's more so when I'm solo doing the DR shadow stuff, but in both cases it's sort of like several phases. The first is the beginning, uh, watching the dancers and listening to the caller and making sure that everything's going fine, you know, because if if the caller is going to like. You know, it happens every once in a while where things just the, the the walkthrough wasn't good enough or whatever. It messes up and you just have to stop and start over again. So you got to be ready for that, ready to stop on a dime. Um, but then just watching, you know, like are the are the dancers like when the long lines go in and out, uh, how wavy are those lines? Like how, how many people are making it to the long lines on time versus like catching up late or, you know, and at the transition, if there's like a pass through or something, how many like across the floor is everybody passing through smoothly? First three times through the dance, there's usually a lot of like kind of variation and fuzziness. Um, so there's that initial phase of watching, is it going? And if I'm doing the electronic music, then it's watching very carefully to make sure that I'm phrase lined up with the dance and making sure, you know, because I may need to jiggle it, whatever. Um, I also do the thing where I just sort of keep a generic beat going through the walkthrough, so like a rolling start kind of thing. Um, always. It's, and then I then I crossfade into the tune. So I've got the tune playing, the set playing in my headphones, and I'm watching the dancers and making sure that we're lined up before I do the phase in, because if I, I crossfade in, well, the potential to mess everything up pretty badly um, and look like an idiot in the process. Uh, so getting, getting that right is the first part. So very much just focus on that. And then as soon as things are going, which is probably like the fifth time through if I'm solo or sooner if we're mean lids, because more flexible um then breathe a sigh of relief um (laughs) things are off to the races uh and then then watching and sort of feeling the the dynamic you know like then i'm starting to shape things like are what am i feeling are we going to go up we're going down is this are we going to make this a really trancy track are we going to you know what are are, is it you know we're five dances in we're one before the break do people need like something energetic to keep them pumped or they need a little bit of a breather like thinking about like getting into that space and i i don't really articulate that in my mind anymore but just sort of like that's more of the like feeling sort of the gut feeling of you know where are we at and what are 
where are we going? What's going to make this really fun? Mm -hmm. And then riding that through till we're two minutes from the end of the track, which is four times through, and then getting ready to figure out how to get out of it and looking to the caller to be like, is it going to be three times? It's going to be two <laughs> times. <laughs> right. And then having to get back into very much sort of action with the mean lids and we're usually talking to each other at that point being like, what are we going to do? You know, were you, which way are we going? We're going up, we're going down. Um, yeah, that's the kind of the journey for eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you must have a pretty good grasp of tempo, especially doing electronic music where you could just dial in the tempo that you want. Um, what tempos do you like to work in? So I, so electronic music, I mix everything at 120 beats per minute. Because mm -hmm. then, given our awesome technology currently, uh, it will tolerate slowing down to about 114 or speeding up a little bit to like 225 uh, without any trouble. Oh, because you're using samples. <laughs> yeah, right. And see, this is one fun <laughs> thing that because I'm writing everything in MIDI, I can slow it down as long as I want because ah, it's gener generating right, audio right. in real time and not stretching it. So you have to be a little careful with your samples. You I don't can't go, go too far. Yeah, I can't go down that far. Um, so that's the range. And then when we're playing acoustically, we can we can go further, but sort of that we, I mean, I, right now I, I'm happy playing like around a hundred, but not for a concert dance. Um, right. Yeah, we would, we, so we, if the, if it's a, the crowd, if, if it's a, you know, a, depending on the crowd, uh, and oftentimes we check with the caller if they have a lot of experience calling in terms of like, do they think that the audience or that the, the the dance hall is full of people who want to go at 120 because that's a good clip you know it's mm -hmm. you're moving um versus if it's a you know a lot of newer dancers or whatever we slow it down we will play 112 to 120 like anywhere mm -hmm. in there all night long mm -hmm. and if left to our own devices we probably would be slightly on the 112 side these days mm -hmm. just because it's comfortable yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a nice nice place to be yeah, I remember when I first started doing electronic music for Contras, um, I was doing them faster, like 120, 118 or something. Sometimes 124 felt fun, and it was uh -huh. a simple dance with like a, like a lot of petronella bounces or something can go faster. And then one of the dancers said, you know, I just assumed that they'd want something driving and energetic for electronic music. And they're like, actually, if you do it slower, we have more time to dip each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, so then I would try to alternate the tempos and have some that were slow and languid and then some that were faster and driving. You know, it's like, oh, serving a different thing here some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the yeah, the, the music that we're, well, that, that I'm sampling and like the bass lines that we're mixing in, uh, those are usually 124 or 125. Uh, uh -huh. Like that's the, that's what, that's kind of deep house tempo, which again is like, you're just a single you would be dancing as a single person, just jumping up and down. Um, right. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you keep the tempo perfectly and you don't have to synchronize with anybody else. So faster is exciting. Um, right. Yeah, that's the, the, I mean, there's so many interesting things in the, uh, all around the the way that, again, say the way that like the communities have sort of embraced electronic or, you know, electro-contra, techno-contra, uh, and sort of are integrating it into the, into the events uh and this idea that it is like a uh you know well it's, 
it's a thing for the cool kids and like you've, everybody's dipping each other and like all those kinds of things. I think that's really interesting, you know? There's nothing inherently about the music and it's the same dances. As far as I know, I'm really waiting for someone to write a dance that somehow is electro-contra only. Oh, I, interesting. I don't know what that would be. Challenge for callers out there. Figure out, figure out why a dance would, why you would choreograph a dance differently if it were to electronic music. Um, I did want to do an electro-contra dance just as an aside, I don't mean to interrupt you, but callers out there, I wanted to do contra dances at late night that do work at 96 beats per minute oh. so I could play all these amazing electronic grooves that I want to. What contra Write a contra dance that works at 96 beats per minute. Will Mentor, you seem like the kind of guy who would do that. <laughs> Get on it, people. Uh, How can you walk that slow and still enjoy it is what I want to know. The yeah, that's the speed of music I'm writing these days. Uh, intentionally yeah. not to be contradicted, I suppose originally, but you could do it. I would love to do it. Um, you play English, right? Yeah. So the, I I don't very I have once, but um, the tempos vary a lot in that, don't they? Yeah, they do. People are still walking and they enjoy it a lot. So, well, I don't know what this so? means, but. Yep. Da, da, da. da da da. What is that contra dance? That slower groovy contra dance. I, yeah, now no. that we all get older, maybe I just, I want to create the new thing of like late night slow contras. Yeah. <laughs> Candles <laughs> and uh -huh. relaxing uh -huh. vibes. <laughs> It'd be fun. That'd be very fun. But you would dance Ooh. totally differently. You'd have to fill up the uh -huh. time differently. And, Sounds great. Know. Yeah, I want to try it out. Uh -huh. It's like something we would do at like 3 a.m. at CDH to test out and see if it would work or something uh -huh. like that. Um, but, <laughs> you know... While we're talking about the future, like where do you think things are headed or where do you think things might go after the phoenix arises from the ashes? Yeah, so so I've go I've occasionally uh entertained, you know, the kind of the fears that um you know, a bunch of events will have disappeared, communities will have evaporated, like some things might not survive, like some of these events mm -hmm. that you know that we we used to go to might not come back. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a little bit scary. I don't like that feeling at all. Um, but on the other side, very confident that there are so many people who where contra dance has been an integral part of their lives for so long. You know, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I just like fell entirely in when I was 15 and I'm not giving it up for any reason. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's going to be that a lot of like Phoenix rising moments of, you know, when it's when it's safe and we can have, you know, events regularly like just people are just going to be ecstatic. I'm going to be ecstatic. Um, just like the outpouring of emotion is going to be so, so huge that the, the phoenix will rise. Um, and there'll be new generations of dancers and this will go on. And, you know, my kids are growing up. I have a, an 11 year old. He's, he'll be, he's, I know he doesn't know this yet, but he's going to be a contra dancer. Um, he's going to love it. Uh, yeah. It, it's, I, just, I don't know what's going to, I don't know when new things are going to happen, but, um, Will it go? Will what? Whatever normal was, will we go back to normal? I don't know, but I am a thousand percent a believer that the passion of, of folk music and contra dancing and you know folk songs. This is all. It's all here. We're, we're just keep on doing it. And if anything, it's kind of like yeah, we're more like the the bottle that is has been corked too long. Someone's shaking it up, and now it's just gonna explode with champagne all over the place. Celebration of, of uh, all these good things. Oh, it's amazing to think about. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, it has been so wonderful talking with you today, and it's just been really great to reconnect. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been my pleasure. This has been a, a delight. And someday the phoenix will rise again, and we'll be back at it in the future. We will. We will. Yep. Keep stoking the fire. <laughs> keep playing slow <laughs> tunes. <laughs> yes. Got to keep those embers burning, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you, Ben. Take care. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meta Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!